You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash rajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Summer, and I will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, as we usually do, we are going to be speaking about two uh, main topics for the day. Um, the first topic is in regards to uh, the situation uh, in Sri Lanka. We're going to be unraveling it um, from protests to an economic crisis. Um, that will take us all the way up until the 8 o'clock news. And in the second hour, we are going to be discussing a journey into outer space, exploring the recent astronomical discoveries. Uh, we have um, touched on this uh, from different aspects uh, in previous shows as well, but we, this, this is what we're going to be specifically talking about in the second hour. Um, so do stay tuned for that. And of course, if you do want to voice your opinion about any of the topics that we address today, or any of the uh, news articles even uh, that we're going to get into right now as well, then of course you can do so. The number for you as always is 0208-687-7878. Remember this is your radio station and we'd love for you to get involved. Um, so like I said, do pick up the phone uh, and give us a call or even tweet uh, us uh, or leave your comments on our Instagram page at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so before getting into the main articles for the day, uh, as uh, for for our regular listeners will be will be aware, uh, we usually uh, go go through the, the the news and of course the weather as well. Um, so today uh, we have uh, highs of twenty nine degrees and lows of seventeen um, degrees Celsius, a light cloud and a moderate breeze. Um, on on Wednesday we have highs of 27 and lows of 14. Thursday we have highs of 25 and lows of 13. Uh, Friday 24 and 11. And Saturday we have highs of 25 um, and lows of 13, similar to Thursday. Um, but the weather outlook is uh, basically that there's a cloudy start today with spells of rain um, and some mist in the west. Sunny spells uh, will develop for most uh, later. But spots of rain uh, will linger for the north and west, very warm in the southeast and breezy as well. Tonight, uh, we'll uh, see a mix of uh, variable cloud and clear intervals throughout the night. Um, It will be dry in the east, but western parts may see some rain, most frequent in western Scotland, uh, breezy and warm. Um, if we look at the weather for tomorrow, uh, for Wednesday, so, uh, southern parts will be dry with a variable cloud uh, to start, but turning uh, increasingly sunny into the afternoon. Northern areas will tend to remain cloudier with scattered 
showers um, and if we look at the weather outlook from Thursday all the way up until Saturday uh, we can see that there's sunshine and patchy cloud on Thursday with a few showers uh, these most frequent uh, in the northwest are cooler with winds easing um, Friday will be dry and sunny in the south but cloudier towards the north with a few showers in the northwest a similar day on Saturday with uh, cloudier skies to the north with a few spots of rain, but dry and sunny to the south. Um, so that is the weather outlook um, from today all the way up until Saturday. So it does look like we have um, good weather here in uh, the, the, the the UK. Um, n- nice and warm. Um, a few showers here and there, but, uh, but, but, but yeah, it does look good for the rest of the week as well. Um, the newspaper headlines. So England's Dancing Queens and Morden uh, Backs a Truss. Um, so if we um, um, if we look at the, uh, there's pictures of the triumphant lionesses adorn most of the front pages following the Euro 22 uh, victory uh, yesterday. Dancing Queens is the headline on the Metro as uh, Rachel da- uh, Daly, Millie Bright, Beth Mead and Chloe Kelly celebrate on a stage in Trafalgar Square. Um, everyone is buzzing, quote-unquote, is the headline on The Guardian as it quotes match winner Chloe Kelly. Um, the paper says the England women's victory has echoed around the nation as it looks uh, at the team's legacy. The Daily Telegraph leads on Miss Truss's former leadership rival uh, Penny Mordaunt, uh, who has now backed for, her, for, 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 for the top job. The Trade Minister has backed the Foreign Secretary, saying she has the graft and the uh, authenticity, uh, quote-unquote, to win and calling her the hope candidate um the i says outgoing prime minister boris johnson blames the 2019 intake of tory mps for contributing to his downfall this is according to a friend of his the paper alleges mr johnson believes the group spent too much time on twitter during the early months in lockdown instead of forging party allegiances in westminster um the uh, away from the football many of the papers focus on the out- ongoing tory leadership contest the daily mail leads on a vow from favorite uh, liz truss to call on a halt on junk food taxes the paper quotes her as saying she will rip up any uh, rip up nanny state plans um including allowing unhealthy buy one get one free offers um, the Daily Express uh, also leads on Miss Truss's tax promises, saying she has insisted she is the real deal on tax. It says uh, she is promising to quickly help millions of families uh, keep more of their hard-earned money. Um, while Miss Mordaunt uh, and the Lionesses feature on the Times front page, uh, it leads its its lead story is on airline British Airways uh, suspending ticket sales. The unprecedented move could push up uh, already high prices 
Across the industry, the paper warns. The Financial Times leads on plans for the US Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, to meet Taiwan's uh, Taiwan's, uh, president in uh, a a controversial visit, which has triggered concern over a possible military response from China. The paper says China has issued a strong warning to the Biden administration over the the, the visit. Um, The Daily Star has a story about a bear-loving pony uh, who has been elected mayor but uh, also barred from his local pub. A very uh, interesting uh, bit of news over there as well. The the once bitter rivals in the conservative leadership race, Liz Truss and Penny Mordaunt, are pictured together smiling on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Their appearance um, at a hustings uh, in Exeter uh, on Monday came as Miss Mordaunt uh, publicly gave her backing to the Foreign Secretary to be the pri- next Prime Minister and declared her the candidate of quote-unquote hope. The paper says Miss Mordaunt's uh, endorsement was a surprise given what it calls the acrimonious uh, acrim- uh, briefing war that erupted between the pair during the earlier stages of the leadership contest. The Times uh, says Miss Morden's support is a significant boost for the trust campaign, um, especially as a new poll suggests that the race against Rishi Sunak to succeed Boris Johnson is tightening. Um, the paper says a private survey by uh, Miss Truss's team, which it ha- which has seen, has her only five points in front in contrast to the other surveys. The Times uh, goes on to say that sources in Mr. Sunak's camp claim the shift reflect uh, reflects uh, feedback they've been getting on the ground and that many members are yet to make up their, their minds about who they'll support. Um, a trust campaign source, however, tells the paper that it's paying no attention to polling but fighting for every vote. The I reports uh, Boris Johnson blaming the 2019 intake of Conservative MPs for contributing to his downfall. To, to his downfall, the paper quotes a friend, um, like we mentioned earlier as well, who says the outgoing Prime Minister believes the, uh, the group spent too much time on Twitter rather than forging party allegiances in Westminster during the early months of lockdown, and this left them flaky with less loyalty to their leader. Members uh, of the new intake have reacted angrily, um, with one telling the paper that Mr Johnson is a narcissist who didn't know half their names when he got into trouble. Um, the Times uh, calls British Air- Airways suspension of the sale of uh, short-haul flights from Heathrow for, for, for at least a week another blow to holiday makers. Um, and lastly, the paper warns that the move could push up prices on rival carriers. Um, However, it also says it will help to stabilise BA's operations um, and reduce the risk of disruption caused by overlooking. Um, So that was a, a brief for the newspapers today. Um, quite a few uh, different uh, articles, quite a few different headlines um, with uh, with with the theme um, being around the the, the 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 England's win yesterday, and and of course about Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, as well. Um, Bashir, what what did anything uh, catch your eye? What what was most interesting to you out of these uh, these headlines that we've gone through today? Uh, yeah, you just mentioned. Um uh, the football as well mm-hmm. that uh, the women's team um, won on Sunday the 31st of July 
So England uh, won uh, 2-1 in uh, the UEFA Women's Championship final, um, which took place in Sunday, I believe, in Wembley Stadium as well. And um, this was in extra time as well, in the second half of extra time where um, they were able to score uh, the second goal and practically uh, seal the victory for themselves. Um, so very uh, uh, kudos to the whole uh, England team, and um, I'm not I'm not sure when was the last time um, the England's uh, woman team actually won or has won before. Mm. So this is quite quite a, quite an achievement. Um, apart from that, um, moving on to uh, some more um, progressive news. Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, al-Qaeda leader, is killed in U.S. drone strike. The U.S. has killed the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, in a drone strike in Afghanistan. President Joe Biden has confirmed he was killed in a counter-terrorism operation carried out by the CIA in the Afghan capital of Kabul on Sunday. Mr. Biden said Zawahiri had uh, carved a trail of murder and violence against American citizens. Now justice ha- has been delivered and this terrorist leader is no more, he added. Zawari took over Al-Qaeda uh, after the death of Osama bin Laden in 2011. He and bin Laden plotted the 9-11 attacks together and he was one of the US's most wanted terrorists. Officials say Zawari is, uh, was on the balcony of a safe house when the drone fired two missiles at him. Other family members were present, but they were unharmed, and only he was killed in the attack, they added. Mr. Biden said he gave the final approval for the precision strike on the 71-year-old Egyptian after months of planning. His killing will bring closure to families of the nearly 3,000 victims of the 2001 attacks, Mr. Biden added. No matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you're a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out, said Mr. Biden. Uh, adding that we shall never waver from defending our nation and its people. Um, He also said that Zawari had also masterminded other attacks of violence, including the suicide bombing of the USS Cole naval destroyer in uh, Aden in October 2000, which killed 17 US sailors and the 1998 attacks on the US embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, in which 223 people died. He insisted that Afghanistan would never again become a safe haven for terrorists. A Taliban spokesman described the U.S. operation as a clear violation of international principles, but did not mention Zawari. Such actions are a repetition of the failed experiences of the past 20 years and are against the interests of the United States of America, uh, Afghanistan and the region, the spokesman uh, added. However, U.S. officials maintained that the operation had had a legal basis, the killing of Zawari comes nearly a year after US troops completed their withdrawal from Afghanistan on the orders of Mr. Biden, bringing an end to a 20-year military presence there. Um, so, quite quite a um, interesting story there yeah. of uh, you know who this who this man was and what um, what he was involved in, but also. Um, you know the chilling words of President Joe Biden, who, who, who said that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, 
if you're a threat to our people, the US will find you. And um, it seems that he's he's um, holding true to that statement. Mm. Um, yeah. So, was there anything else that you found uh, particularly interesting? Uh, I, th- I think that was about it from uh, from 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 the news. Mm. Um, that we were going we were going through BBC News, and that that those were the main articles that we saw for the day. Um, but uh, in in other news, um, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, actually we're we're having our annual convention mm. uh, on on the week the coming weekend, isn't it? From Friday to to Sunday. Um, and many of our uh, our older listeners, uh, they'll be well aware of what this is. Uh, our regular listeners, um, and this is uh, the 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 annual convention, um, which we call it uh, the the Jalsa Salana. Um, and even this uh, Jalsa Salana, although it's not not in English, uh, many of our um, uh, English speaking, uh, of course, uh, listeners will be actually aware of this um, because we speak about it so so frequently here on the Voice of Islam radio station as well. And this 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 annual uh, uh, convention is um, like like it states in the name. It's a it's a yearly thing in which we all get together. Um, from the UK, um, the, um, the Ahmadi Muslims, um, and uh, we uh, obviously guests come as well as mm. well, uh, uh, as well to that, um, and people come from abroad as well uh, mm. because it's such a spectacle, it's such a uh, an interesting thing for for people to see, and also at the same time f- for those people who aren't able to make it physically, um, it does get uh, telecasted as well, and you can watch it online as well mm. um, on TV and, uh, and and of course on YouTube and other. Um, uh, platform of platforms as well um and the 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 purpose of this is to renew our faith uh, in a sense mm. isn't it uh, it's to come together to meet your your brothers um and sisters in faith um and uh, and listen to the faith inspiring uh, incidents speeches as well uh, listening to the addresses by the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um Hazimiza Masoor Ahmad may Allah strengthen his hand um and, uh, and and yeah basically just revitalizing uh, yourselves isn't it yeah it's a it's a lovely event not just for uh, Ahmadis but non Ahmadis as well who yeah. Um, um, are present in quite quite a vast number, hmm. um, and uh, you did mention that it's uh, uh, not in English. Some parts, some parts are like some of the guest speakers who yeah. uh, come, and um, you know we've had various MPs talk at yeah. um, uh, the Jalsa, and then o- other guests who are um, who work with uh, the community as well, um, and lots of these guests. Um, um, take the time out um, of their weekend to come along, hmm. um, and if not come along, at least send a video yeah. um, to um, perhaps um, explain their ties with with the community. Um, you know m- what they've been working uh, on uh, outside of the community and sharing their information. Yeah. So it's quite a nice setting to for guests as well. Um, you know, people who uh, can't speak. Um, um, the different languages that it is held in, um, you know, given a little translator aid and um, yeah. that translates it all um, live. Yeah. So um, it's not like you're missing anything out. But yeah, so it's a it's a amazing setting. There's lots going on there, 
um, and as you said, it is available to stream online. Yeah, and and if anyone would like to to actually come and visit as well, uh, and see it for themselves, and by all means they can do so. Uh, just uh, give us a call in our number, um, and we can help you and assist you in, in any way that you you may need. Um, and uh, like we mentioned earlier as well, the number for you as always is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Um, and of course, you can tweet us and leave your comments on our Instagram page as well at Voice of Islam UK. Um, I, I mean, uh, just before we um, get it into the first topic, it, it will be interesting, isn't it, uh, this year, especially as uh, last year, um, the, the it was very limited, mm-hmm. isn't it? It was it was only um, uh, each individual was only allowed to go for one day unless they had duty, of course. Mm. Um, and uh, it was very limited. If I remember correctly, I think it was t- only ten thousand people were were allowed to come. Yeah, uh, and this is in comparison to about forty thousand. Exactly. It? Yeah. So so normally it's it's open and around forty thousand people come mm. um, from from the UK, of course, plus uh, from other countries mm. as well, uh, from all over the world. Actually, it's not it's not even just like a Europe thing. It's mm. uh, it's an international thing uh, where people come from from America from uh, from Africa from from Europe from Asia from all over the world um, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, like you said it's a lovely setting mm. um, in which you see your your friends uh, as well after after such a long time mm. um, and and yeah it'll be it'll be interesting uh, to, to 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 see a uh, an annual convention back to how it used to be uh, beforehand as well of course with still with some sort of restrictions um, for for safety purposes, mm. um, but but yeah, the numbers uh, will be there, God willing, this year. So so yeah, it'll be very interesting to to to, to see that. Um, going into our first uh, topic for the day now, first main topic, um, unraveling the situation in Sri Lanka from protests to an economic crisis. So the protests in Sri Lanka uh, started in its capital, Colombo in April and have since then spread across the country. Um, amongst the many consequences of the poorly considered government decisions, Sri Lanka's tea farmers are also struggling to survive. Uh, according to a, B- a BBC article, inflation in Sri Lanka is running at more than 50%. Um, and in this segment, we will uh, try to unravel the situation over there, uh, discussing the source of the protests, the country's economic crisis, and of course, what the future holds as well. So, the, uh, the a state of emergency has been declared in Sri Lanka um, after President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's uh, Rajapaksa's uh, he how, after he fled the country. Um, a series of mass protests have taken place within the country since April due to the economic crisis caused primarily. Um, by the country's poor political decisions and economic mismanagement, uh, but worsened this year as foreign currency began running out. The uh, country is experiencing daily power cuts and shortages of food, fuel and medicine, uh, among other basics. As a result, um, there aren't enough fuel supplies for services such as buses, trains and even medical vehicles. Petrol and diesel prices have increased dramatically within the country and inflation is running at more than 50%. 
In June, um, the government uh, banned the sale of petrol and diesel for non-essential vehicles for two weeks, um, and the sale of fuel still remains severely restricted. Children and non-essentials, uh, non-essential workers have been asked to work from home to help con- conserve uh, supplies. The tea in- industry, which we mentioned earlier, which brings a billion dollars um, to to the to the country every year, um, has been severely impacted by the crisis as well. Um, Bashir, what what does uh, the uh, what does Islam uh, tell us when it comes to um, th- this topic? I mean, there's a few different things and a few different ways um, in which we can tackle this. Um, but what comes to mind um, when when we're talking about such uh, uh, problems? Well, on countless occasions, um, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, stressed the importance of maintaining peace and justice in society. At the ninth annual peace symposium, His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, said, there is only one way to uh, save the world from the destruction and devastation that it is heading towards, and that is that we must endeavor to spread love, um, affection, and a sense of community. Uh, more importantly, the world uh, must come to recognize its creator, who is the one God. This is because it is the recognition of the Creator that leads us towards love and compassion for His creation. And when this becomes part of our character, it is then that we become recipients of God's love. Um, In the same address, His Holiness, may Allah be His helper, also stated, in some countries, members of the public are fighting and waging wars amongst themselves. In some nations, the public is fighting against the government, or conversely, the rulers are attacking their own people. Terrorist groups are fueling anarchy and disorder to f- fulfill their vested interests, and so they are arbitrarily killing innocent women, children, and the elderly. In some countries, as a means to fulfill their own interests, political parties are warring with each other rather than coming together for the betterment of their nations. We also find some governments and countries are continuously casting their glances enviously in the direction of the resources of other nations. The major powers of the world are consumed by their efforts to maintain the supremacy and leave no stone unturned in their efforts towards pursuing this goal. But, um, Brother Sam, how did the protests begin? And, you know, what, what is the timeline of events since the beginning of the protests? Hmm. So they began um, in April um, in the capital, uh, Colombo, uh, and have since spread across the country. Um, protesters marched to President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's uh, residence in late March to protest over the worsening economic conditions within the country. Um, the protests uh, escalated in April and sit-in demonstrations were arranged um, outside the President's office. Um, clashes between pro- and anti-government protesters led to widespread violence within the country um, on May the 9th, uh, Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa, uh, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's older brother, resigned and widespread violence left nine dead and 300 people injured. Um, after protesters storm in his official presidential residence on July the 9th, uh, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa uh, informs the parliamentary speaker that he plans to step down on July the 13th. 
President Gotabaya Rajapaksa uh, flees Sri Lanka on July 13th. Initially, um, he heads to Maldives, but later settles in Singapore. Um, Rikamishinge, uh, uh, who had uh, replaced Mahinda after he resigned, wins the vote in Parliament to become the new uh, president on July um, the 20th, but a large section of the public remains unhappy as uh, he was seen to be an ally of the former president. In the Holy Quran, if we turn to chapter 5, verse 9, it states that, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity. And let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness. And fear Allah, surely Allah is aware of what you do. And if we turn to another place within the Holy Quran, chapter 16, verse 91, it professes, Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing good of, uh, 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 to, to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. He admonished you that you may take heed. So, of course, I mean, we can see that Islam, it always teaches us to be on the right path. It always teaches us to be just. It always teaches us to to be in a position to help others um, and to, to get rid of any sort of uh, evils and indecencies and wrongful transgressions like we saw from this verse as well um, and try to help uh, others as, as much as possible T- take, trying to take people out of uh, poverty trying to help people and assist uh, people um, and always doing good and uh, being just uh, as well um, and in regards to justice as well, many of our um, uh, regular listeners will be aware of this. But uh, Islam teaches us that uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to justice, it's not simply enough to be good to to others or to be fair to others, um, which is what let's say world world governments and world leaders always teach us um that you need to be good uh, to others whatever you receive similar uh you, you should be in a similar kind uh you should react uh, with others as well um but islam teaches us that to, that we should go two steps forward uh and two steps further than that it teaches us that it's not simply enough to be just um, but rather you need to be good to others as well. So if mm. anyone is uh, being good to you, then of course return that with with goodness um, uh, of a similar kind, but also go a step further um, and, uh, and be even better towards them mm. as well. Um, and then the next step um, which Islam teaches us is to to not just be um, uh, not for for that good to to suffice, but rather you should be doing such good that it's uh, as if um, you you are a mother uh, to to the individual, and the way that you would treat and nurture your own child, um, that is the way, and that is the love and the affection that you should be showing to others as well. So even if someone has wronged you. Um, then still uh, our response should not be that, oh, because such an individual has has wronged us or or they did an evil or an ill towards us, then we should react kindly. But rather, um, we should try to forgive and forget and also 
um, um, be, be like giving to the to the kindred and be like a mother mm. uh, who nurtures uh, her child uh, as well to 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 the, to the whole uh, world in essence. That's what Islam uh, teaches us. Um, but more on the the actual topic at hand. Um, we're going to be speaking uh, to Professor Simon Commander. Um, Simon Commander is Altura's managing partner. He is uh, he has extensive experience working with both public and private sectors in an advisory uh, capacity. He is also currently Professor um, of uh, Economics at uh, IE Business School Madrid, where he teaches a, uh, an MBA course in emerging uh, markets and the international economy. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome. Welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning to you. Good morning to thank you, you and thank you. Me. You're welcome, and thank you for for being with us, Professor uh, Commander. Um, just getting straight into the questions, really. The first question that we wanted to ask you was, what are foreign exchange reserves, and what caused Sri Lanka to have a shortage of these? Well, uh, foreign re- exchange reserves are um, obviously important because you have to import. Uh, goods and services, and particularly at the moment, you, you, you would need to import energy. Sri Lanka obviously does not produce energy. Um, so foreign res- exchange reserves have shrunk to, I think, probably at last count, about $1.5 billion or something. So they're down by over half compared with a year ago, and have been actually even earlier this year at even lower levels. Mm-hmm. And um, this makes it, of course, extremely hard to make even basic imports, let alone service your external debt. So the, the reserves, in a sense, are a symptom of a, of a, a wider malaise, and, and that is crystallized in the really extraordinary rapid accumulation of debt by the Sri Lankan government over the last 15-odd um, years, and particularly accelerated in the last 10 and uh, that debt's not just only been public debt per se, which is now about 120% of GDP, um, which is a significant number, mm. um, but it's also external debt. So external debt rocketed from about about 10 or $11 billion in nominal terms back in about 2005, which is when the first Rajapaksa came to power. And it's basically, um, quintupled, so it stands at near on sixty billion right now. So this is this is what the reserve situation is, and this is what's in a sense caused it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, what other uh, factors uh, contribute to the economic crisis, uh, specifically speaking to, uh, about Sri Lanka? Well, that's a, that's a good question and a complex one, and there of course are many factors. Um, but, I mean, just to give you a sense of what the crisis is, um, in, insofar as some of your listeners may not know the full details, essentially it's both a political and economic crisis. Um, because of reserves problems, there's chronic shortages of essential goods, fuel, um, there's bad or non-existent power supply, incomes are plummeted, people aren't able to work, businesses are collapsing, kids can't go to school, um, the country's defaulted on its external debt, uh, and there's now approaching hyperinflation. I mean, mm-hmm. inflation is running at 50, 60% per month. 
so, you know, these are pretty horrible combination of things. Um, you know, think organizations like the World Bank and the IMF estimate that, you know, 50% of the population, Sri Lanka's population is roughly, what, 21, 22 million people. Roughly 50% of that population will be below the poverty line wow. uh, in the coming months. And that's an extraordinary collapse. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can think of that was comparable was Argentina back in the early 2000s when their currency collapsed. So the situation is dire. Um, and, you know, if you like, we can talk about some of the reasons for why it's got into that position. Uh, Professor Simon, to talk um, a bit more on that, uh, on those reasons, why why, uh, was there so much tension created between the public and the Rajapaksa family? Well, this I think gets to the root of it. I mean, the Rajapaksas have dominated Sri Lankan politics from the early 2000s onwards, and they're not just one or two of them, but they're actually quite a lot. and um, in a little paper I did recently with a Sri Lankan colleague and a, a colleague from LSE, we put up uh, the Rajapaksa family tree, which is not something you normally do uh, in political systems. Um, and what we had was um, the first Rajapaksa, as it were, was Mahinda Rajapaksa, who got elected president in 2005. He'd been prime minister uh, the years, a couple of years before that. You've got his brother, uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who at that time was the defense minister, and who more recently, in 2019, became the president. And then you've got the, another brother, Basil Rajapaksa, who in recent times was the minister of finance, and before that, minister of economic development. And you've got a fourth brother, who was not only an MP, but Speaker of the Parliament between 2010 and 2015. And then you've got a bunch of their sons who are also active and hold positions in the Parliament or have acted as, as Deputy Ministers and the like. And many of the family also occupy positions in uh, public, um, publicly owned uh, companies uh, and such like. And the reason I'm telling you this is that essentially the Rajapaksas have rolled the country up into a almost a rule by a family clan. And the allegation is that they have not only acted uh, with extreme impunity and with a great deal of um, moral turpitude, basically are highly corrupt, uh, but they've also been extraordinarily incompetent and made uh, a range of, of really dreadful um, policy decisions which um, have manifested themselves in the crisis and part of those um, bad decisions have been to accumulate too much debt as we discussed uh, a great deal of that by the way from China to spend it on um, what is often referred to as white elephants in other words on bad projects vanity projects uh, the most extreme examples are in their home, their family hometown of Ham Bantota, where the Chinese essentially have constructed an international airport, a port, um, a cricket stadium, a conference centre, and all of these uh, are basically, well, the conference centre, cricket place and the like, 
are barely used, are just draining money. And the port, they've been unable to sustain debt payments on it, service the debt. So the Chinese have basically just assumed it on a 99-year lease. Um, so I suppose the, the long and the short of it is to say that the people are disenchanted because the Rajapaksas have led them uh, by this unpleasant combination of corruption and bad judgment into an economic um, morass. Well, they basically let the economy fall off a cliff. And, and this is the source of, of their anger. And, you know, to talk about um, how this economic collapse actually occurred. Um, so the former Sri Lankan uh, president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, um, went to Singapore for, for what was supposed to be a short visit. Um, and then he ended up resigning. So could you tell us a little bit about um, the aftermath effects of that? Yes. Well, Gotabaya Rajapaksa um, got elected fairly and squarely in the election of 2019. There's no doubt about that. It wasn't an unfair election. He became president, and then he immediately appointed his brother, Mahinda, as prime minister. Mahinda, as I mentioned now, was previously the president from 2005. Uh, and then he started populating the government with his relations and the like. Now, um, Rajapaksa resisted, you know, as the crisis unfolded, uh, as all these things that I described, no power, no imports of fuel, uh, collapse of businesses and the like um, uh, un uh, uh, unraveled, um, Gotabaya Rajapaksa refused to resign because there was a great deal of pressure, um, not so much from the parliament, which is dominated by their political party, but from the street and from professional people. So lots of um, manifestations in the street, lots of strikes and the like. Uh, and ultimately, um, it, these got uh, sufficiently, um, well, perhaps, uh, well, powerful, if you like, that they led to um, individuals essentially occupying the presidency and the president's house. They burnt down the prime minister's house and so on and so on. And at that point, um, Gotabaya Rajapaksa basically uh, pretty much panicked and fled the country on uh, an Air Force plane going to the Maldives and then going on to Singapore. And uh, this was um, really, I imagine he had, uh, thought he was in fear of his life. Uh, now, in Singapore, he sent out mixed signals saying, well, I may well be returning. Um, and the reason he can do this is that the parliament, once after his resignation, um, has elected as president a man called Ranil Vikramasinghe, who's not part of the family as such, although I believe his wife, one of his wife's relations is married into the Rajapaksas. Um, I may be wrong on that, but I, I believe that may be true. Um, but he's considered to be a close associate of them. So I think what is happening now is some attempt by uh, Raja, the Rajapaksa's political party and them to see whether they can make a comeback. 
Um, but there's a great deal of anger, and I'm not sure that that's going to work, and I'm absolutely sure it would be a bad idea. And the follow-up, obviously, is um, to provide as much support as possible in this um, economic crisis. So what what are neighbouring countries doing and then Sri Lanka itself what what is Sri, uh, Sri Lanka's best options as well to address the current crisis well they don't have many good options let me tell you um, uh, they owe 50 billion and rising to creditors wow. they're going to need at least 6 billion or more in external support in the coming 6 and so months now what they've done is what most countries who get into situations like this do, which is they go to the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. And indeed, before um, Gautabaya Rajapaksa fled the country, the IMF had had sent some of their staff to the country and a set of discussions had been uh, undertaken with them in order to have a program um, of support from the IMF. And I think if that came off, um, the IMF loan would be in the region of three billion probably dollars or thereabouts. But if a loan, if arrangements with the IMF were agreed, that would potentially unlock about four billion more from the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank and other international financial institutions. But as you can see, um, those are significant magnitudes, but there's an awful lot of debt that's overhanging at, at the same time and a lot of debt to be serviced. So um, the Sri Lankans have gone round with a begging bowl, to put it crudely, uh, to other countries in the Gulf, to Qatar. Uh, Rajapaksa himself um, got on the phone to Putin and was asking Putin for help with fuel and the like. So they've gone, and of course they've been talking all through this to the Chinese. Um, my feeling is that they were unable to secure large commitments of support from any of those parties. Uh, some, like the Qataris, I think, pretty much said, you know, when the government, when we, when you get a credible government, we'll start talking, but weren't going to disperse anything uh, while the Rajapaksas were still there. So I think um, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unwillingness by neighbors to provide substantial support when there's so much political uncertainty. Professor Summon, it's um, been wonderful to have you on today with such insightful information, um, and we hope to see you again at another time on another show. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me, and I hope you, your readers and your listeners find it useful. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so much. That, that was uh, Professor Simon Commander, who is Altura's managing partner. He has extensive experience working with both public and private sectors in the advisory capacity. He's also currently Professor of Economics at IE Business School Madrid, where he teaches a, uh, an MBA course in emerging markets and the international economy. Um, so a very interesting um, discussion there regarding Sri Lanka, its economic crisis, and essentially how it can bounce back and it seems like there aren't many options as Professor Simon was saying mm. um, so it's a difficult situation for Sri Lanka to be in and um, you know obviously 
the vast majority of the public has nothing to do with this. So, and they're the ones that are going to be suffering at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It's a, yeah. I mean, so 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 much debt as well. And he, he was. He, I think I think he mentioned around fifty percent um, of uh, of the population will be. Um, um, uh, be, be, be under poverty mm. as well, isn't it? So it just goes to show how dire the situation over there is, um, uh, over there in Sri Lanka. Um, what what are the speculations about the future, though? I mean, we we, we do need to address uh, that as well because obviously um, we uh, we want to bring out some something positive, which uh, which they can do to to really uh, come out of this problem as well. Um, so the 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 former six-time prime minister uh, Rikamashinge, um, uh, he doesn't satisfy uh, the change that the demonstrators had been calling for. The hardship within the country uh, country will most likely continue for now, um, despite the leader um, and the Sri Lankan government is currently in talks with the International Monetary Fund, and is in the process of sourcing more fuel. Um, so, Hazim Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has very clearly outlined how Islam, allowing free market to flourish under state control, is the only answer to the failure of capitalism and communism, both the economic system of Islam uh, is a lecture that he delivered back in 1945. Describing the nature of economic systems of the world, he he states the economic uh, system prevalent in the world can be classified into three types. There is one type of economic system that is not governed by any specified rules and regulations and be called a system only for the sake of convenience. Some nations and countries never spelled out how their economic system would be run and had no specific plan or policy towards that end. Such societies do not distinguish between individual and national goals and in the absence of a set policy adopt any idea that appears convenient or practical. The second system is nationalistic in its approach that is uh, one where uh, nation, uh, nations seek only to maximise their collective and national interests and the third system is individualistic so for example it gives individuals an opportunity to work on their own for the betterment of and progress of their country workers as well as uh, owners of capital uh, uh, are permitted to struggle for the rights and pursue their self interest. Employees have the right to negotiate their wages and benefits with the management which in turn is expected to institute clear rules and regulations governing uh, uh, governing workers. Thus the emphasis in this system is on the individual. These are the three basic economic systems that exist in the world today and he mentioned that the first system is not uh, bound uh, by any definite uh, laws or rules. The second system is nationalistic and is approach, while the third is driven by individualism, and Islam does not accept the first system at all, um, for the Islamic system is based on prescribed principles and laws, and, and that's why you need to have some policies in place as well. Um, and uh, but, but this, unfortunately, does bring us to an end for, for, for this first uh, topic. Uh, don't go anywhere. Here's the 8 o'clock news. Allah, Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. 
broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the second of August, twenty twenty-two. Um, we were in the first hour, uh, along with, of course, the news and the weather and everything else as well. Um, we were uh, addressing the situation in Sri Lanka. Um, just finishing uh, that off before moving on to our next topic, which is a journey into outer space, exploring the recent uh, astronomical discoveries. Um, so we'll be getting into that in, in just a, a few minutes time. Uh, just finishing off the first uh, first uh, first topic. Um, we, we mentioned how His Holiness, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, may Allah be pleased with him. He he was talking about those three systems, um, and he said that uh, how the first one is uh, is is completely uh, not accepted um, as a system from the Islamic point of view as. Um, as 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 it, there, need, there needs to be a system which is based on prescribed principles and laws, uh, which people are of course enjoined to follow. Islam relies on purpose and wisdom, and does not approve of indiscriminate adoption of economic policies. A system without uh, well-designed laws is akin to feeding off of, let's say, wild vegetation that grows on its own. Islamic system, on the other hand, can be compared to a farmer who follows a set routine for sowing seeds, irrigation and nurturing plants. He knows what to keep in his orchard and what to throw out. Um, And according to, to his practice, God Almighty fulfilled his promise and sent a messenger in the person of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him and have mercy on his soul um, for, for, for our age. Uh, um, the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, uh, repeatedly cautioned the world about God's wrath and worldwide tri- tribulations if they would deny, if they would deny uh, Allah's messenger and continue evil and sin. Um, and on the twenty seventh of February, nineteen o five, the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, published the following warning: uh, quote, uh, "Unquote, arise and be ready for a time of great distress has come for this generation. There is no other bark." but that of piety that can take you to the shore. In times of trouble, the faithful one inclines to God, for besides him there is no other security. Atone now for your sins by making yourselves truly humble and give a sacrifice of your own selves by annihilating by annihilating yourselves in truth. Um, and this brings us to an end for the first segment uh, in which we were addressing the situation in Sri Lanka. We addressed where uh, what's happening over there, um, the past as well, what they've gone through, and uh, and and the future as well. How um, and what they can do to to take themselves out of uh, the current situation that they're in. Um, if you are just tuning in uh, after the eight o'clock news, then of course you can uh, revisit this uh, this show as well once uh, it's gone, uh, once it's been uploaded on our website, uh, voiceofislam.co.uk, um, and along with our other shows as well, not just the breakfast show, but uh, all the other shows here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You can revisit um, all of them by going to our SoundCloud, uh, SoundCloud on voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, so going into uh, 
our second topic, a journey into outer space, exploring re- the recent astronomical discoveries. Um, what's this uh, story all about? Well, we've always, um, as far as humans go, we've always thought, um, as, uh, as far as humans go back into um, back into the timeline and we think about uh, when we could first start seeing into the stars, you know, we've always considered what lies beyond the Earth, and you know, are we really alone in the universe? And from NASA, um, we've just had updates for from the Webb telescopes, and these are the uh, uh, from the Webb telescope the first images of unseen of the unseen universe to astronomers detecting a radio heartbeat billions of light years away from the Earth. Outer space is an enigmatic field with many unknowns and hidden discoveries. And um, in this segment that we'll, we'll be talking about today, we'll be venturing into outer space and exploring the recent astronomical discoveries. So the first discovery um, out of, uh, I believe, three we have to talk about. The first one uh, comes as, astronomer, as astronomers at MIT and elsewhere have detected a strange and persistent radio signal from a far-off galaxy that appears to be flashing with surprising uh, regularity. The signal has been labelled as FRB 2019-1221A and is currently the longest-lasting FRB detected to date. Astronomers suspect the signal could uh, emanate from a radio pulsar or a magnetar, which are types of neutron stars. The detection of this signal raises questions about its source, and astronomers hope to catch additional bursts from the signal to help refine their understanding of this. But the second discovery follows as NASA has revealed groundbreaking new views of the cosmos from the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. The images include the deepest infrared view of our universe that has ever been taken, and these new images can help to really explore and uh, essentially introspect into our cosmic history. And they are also seen as a sign that even the most difficult of things can be accomplished in relation to space exploration. And um, I don't know, brother, somewhere if you've seen these images, but they're actually uh, really, really wonderful. Mm. They they almost look like a painting. And it's, uh, I guess, it's a case of... Uh, uh, art imitating life and um, you know that old quote that goes around but um, yeah there's some really uh, lovely photos I would uh, highly recommend um, our listeners to view mm. um, if they if they get the chance and we will be going into our third discovery as well but uh, I do believe we have been joined by our first guest on this segment who uh, in a uh, Professor Claire Dobbs Professor Claire Dobbs is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Exeter and has previously worked at a Max Planck Institute in Germany and uh, did her PhD at St. Andrews. Her main areas of research focus on star formation in galaxies and molecular clouds, which are dense regions of gas where stars come from, uh, where stars uh, form. Uh, But salamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to The Breakfast Show, uh, Professor Claire um, how oh, are you thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Um, we're talking about a journey into outer space, exploring the recent astronomical discoveries. Um, and, you know, recently NASA has revealed 
Webb Telescope's first images of the unseen universe. You know, why is this so significant for the field of astronomy and how do you think this news will encourage more groundbreaking future discoveries? Okay, so just to put in context what, I mean, what um, you probably mean by unseen universe, so one of the first images that was released from the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, JWST, was a deep field image showing thousands of galaxies. And the difference between this image compared to previous ones is that as well as seeing nearby galaxies, we're seeing galaxies from further away than we have ever seen before. Some of these galaxies form just a short time after the Big Bang relative to the age of the universe, and their light has taken most of the age of the universe to reach us. So JWST, which is the telescope in the NASA images, um, can look back to the very first stars and galaxies which we haven't been able to observe before and because of this we don't really have a good picture of how and when the first galaxies and stars formed. So JWST will help us answer questions like when did the first stars form, how long did galaxies take to form and how different or similar were these galaxies to present day galaxies. The first results uh, seem to indicate that there were many more disk galaxies present at earlier times than we'd previously thought. And if this is true, this would challenge our current picture of galaxy formation. With regard to the first stars, we think these would have been much more massive than the sun, um, with some stars hundreds or possibly even thousand times more massive than the sun. They'd become black holes, so another question we're trying to answer is what would have happened to these black holes and are they now the supermassive black holes we see at the centre of galaxies? And what, uh, m many of your research articles have focused on molecular clouds. What, what exactly are molecular, molecular clouds and what causes the f their formation in galaxies? Okay, yes, yeah, so um, as you said right at the start, molecular clouds are then clouds of molecular gas in galaxies and we're interested in them because these are where stars form. Um, it, in fact in um, many of the Hubble images that we see and also some of the recent NASA images um, we, we see particularly beautiful images of these clouds um, because the light from the stars which are forming in these clouds is illuminating all the gas. So in our galaxy, about half the gas is molecular. In high redshift galaxies, most of the gas is molecular and they have high star formation rate. And these clouds form basically whenever the gas becomes dense in galaxies, which can occur if it, uh, the gas is, is compressed. Uh, so, for example, this can occur when gas, is, gas passes through spiral arms. And the gas is subject to uh, extra gravity in the spiral arm because there's more stars there. And that causes the gas to slow down as it's rotating around the galaxy and become compressed into clouds. There are also types of instabilities in the gas, so gravitational instabilities, for example. Um, and some people also think that supernovae lead to molecular cloud formation um, because supernovae are what happens at the end of a star's lifetime um, and um, a supernova causes lots of um, energy to be deposited into the gas so the gas heats up so it's very hot and where the hot gas from the supernova meets the surrounding medium or the surrounding gas it forms a dense shell and, and there's some indication that in this, these dense shells you get uh, molecular clouds forming. I mean and in work like mine for example with numerical simulations 
they indicate that probably all of these processes, uh, processes are relevant on galaxy scales forming molecular clouds and then within these clouds forming stars. Very interesting. Um, and also, Professor Dobbs, um, some of your research also deals with spiral arms. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, can you exactly uh, tell us what spiral arms are and how many of these uh, does the Milky Way contain? Also, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, just also it, w- what the difference is, um, if any, between the the, the various sp- spiral arms as well, please. Okay. Um, yeah, so spiral arms are just regions in the galaxy when there are more stars than average. So there's sort of like over densities in the stars. But galaxies mm-hmm. rotate differentially, which means that they rotate faster in the inner parts than the outer parts. So if a, a galaxy rotated just like a, like a plate or something, uh, if you had um, an overdensity in the stars, it would just like, look like a spoke on a bike. But because they rotate in faster in the central parts, the, um, the, the stars are stretched out into a spiral shape, into a spiral arm. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that in all the cases, the spiral arms are caused by gravity, um, but um, in different ways. So in some cases, we think that the spiral arms are caused by tidal interactions with other galaxies, uh, some by sort of random density fluctuations which grow by gravity, and we think bars may have an impact as well. Again, just the gravitational effect from the bars onto the rest of the galaxy. We're actually not sure how many spiral arms there are in the Milky Way, which seems a bit surprising. Mm -hmm. But basically, because we are inside the Milky Way, we can't see it face on like we do other galaxies or like uh, when we see images of other galaxies. Instead, when we look at the, the, the stars in the sky, we're basically seeing all the spiral arms in the same place on top of each other, or at least if we look towards the inner part of the galaxy. So instead, we have to use velocity information to identify um, or separate out different spiral arms. Um, So the common consensus is there are four arms, but two of these are stronger and two are weaker. Mm -hmm. But for example, our sun, we think, lies in its own separate short section of spiral arm known as the local arm. In terms of differences, there are differences in the dynamics, but in terms of star formation, we don't think that there is a big difference. So one of my students, or former students, Alex Pettit, um, published a paper a couple of years ago where he ran simulations with different types of spiral arms, but found in terms of star formation and molecular clouds, the type of spiral arm or how the spiral arm is generated doesn't make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, And also, what are the uh, stellar clusters and and why are they important? What's the biggest known uh, cluster of stars uh, off the Milky Way that we've come across? Okay. So, yeah, if you're looking in, again, if you're looking at images of galaxies, you'll see these bright regions typically along the spiral arms, and these are stellar clusters. Mm -hmm. And these are groups of stars. And we think that most, if not all, stars are either born in uh, clusters or less dense groups of stars, which are called associations. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we want to understand, for example, the origin of our sun, the likelihood is that it formed in one of these clusters. 
And we also think that planet formation occurs sort of roughly at the same time or shortly after stars form. So if we're thinking about the conditions of planets when they're formed or the environment they form in, they may, may well by, be influenced by other stars in the cluster. Mm -hmm. um, so the most massive stellar clusters are called globular clusters, and we think these formed right when galaxies first formed in the universe. But these, these globular clusters are still around today in the Milky Way and other galaxies. And the biggest such one in our galaxy is called Omega Centauri, and it contains around 10 million stars. Mm. Um, but uh, since, uh, since the galaxy formed, or sort of in more recent times, the clusters that are forming typically last about a few hundred mega years, um, by which time the, the stars disperse, and these are called open clusters. So our sun probably formed in a cluster or association, but at some point it's separated from the other stars and it's now just on its own, so it's no, not with any other stars. Mm. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, thank you, uh, Prof Professor uh, Dobbs, for, 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 for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight into this uh, this very interesting topic um, for the benefit of our listeners and, and telling us about all of these different things, the stellar clusters, spiral arms um, and the, the molecular cl clouds as well. Thank you once again and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Zero zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Claire Dobbs, uh, who is a professor of astrophysics at university at the University of Exeter, um, and pre has previously worked at a Max uh, Planck Institute in Germany and did a PhD in St Andrews. Um, her main areas of research focus on star formation, galaxies, and molecular molecular clouds, which are dense regions of gas where stars um, are from, uh, where stars uh, stars. Uh, form, sorry. Um, we're going to be going to uh, straight to our next guest uh, for the show. We do have with us on the line Professor Ian Crawford, um, who is a professor of planetary science and astrobiology. His research activities um, mostly lie in the fields of planetary science, um, especially lunar science and exploration, and astrobiology which is the search for life in the universe. Uh, he has long had an interest in the future of space exploration and is convinced that space exploration and development will prove to be of central importance for the future of humanity. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Oh, good morning. Good Hello. morning, and thank you for 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 being with us. Um, getting straight into the questions, um, because we do have quite a few as well. Um, why do you think uh, space exploration is significant, and how can it be encouraged, uh, especially amongst the youth? Well, I think the main reason space exploration is important is it's it's tr we're trying to find out our place in the universe. Yeah. We're trying to find out whether the Earth is unique as a planet with life in the universe. Um. And we want to understand our history, how the Earth evolved, the solar system evolved, and how we came to be here. So ultimately, I think space exploration is all about trying to find our place in the universe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and what role uh, do... Uh, I mean, so how can the study of extreme environments um, on Earth help understand environments on planets like, uh, like Mars? 
Well, one of, the, one of the things we want to do, is, certainly in astrobiology, is to find out whether there is life on any other planets. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of that is done by sending spacecraft to planets like, like Mars. But, we all, but the Earth is the only planet we know of that actually has life on it. So some astrobiology research involves finding places on Earth, like uh, volcanoes or other extreme environments, that are kind of similar to places on Mars, or at least places like Mars might have had in the past. And then if we can see what, what, what organisms, they're always microorganisms, live in, live in these extreme environments, we get some insight into the kind of life that might exist in extreme environments on Mars, and that helps us plan the kind of experiments that we can send to Mars to look for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it comes to the um, possibility of, uh, of, of life on, on the moon, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Is there any possibility? Oh, no, not on the moon. I think the, the moon is a totally um, airless body. It has no atmosphere. It has no liquid water. Mm-hmm. So the moon, the moon is not a habitable environment for any kind of life that we can conceive. But Mars... And certainly the early history of Mars, this is different. I mean, early Mars had liquid water on its surface, uh, and, and Mars, as it was thousands of millions of years ago at least, probably was a habitable environment. So what we want to do is find out whether, whether it was inhabited. I mean, just because it was habitable, mm-hmm. to our opinion, doesn't mean any, anything actually ever lived there. So uh, on Mars, it's quite important to try and find out but the moon, no, I think the moon has probably never had any life of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor Ian, we were talking about um, just uh, Mars just then. So what role do cyanobacteria and mi- microalgae play in supporting human habitation on Mars? Well, of course, at the, m- at the moment there is no human habitation on Mars, but, but there mm. might be in the future. So if, if people do go to live on Mars, then obviously we um, uh, they need to take... Um, uh, things uh, they'll they'll need food, but among other things, they need to take water. They need water. They need oxygen. And they'll need food. So the question is how to provide food for people who live on Mars. Um, now, one could, the Martian environment is extremely harsh, but carbon dioxide is present in the atmosphere, and so we could conceive of taking um, microalgae or cyanobacteria and cultivate them as a source of food. But they could never live in the open. Uh, on Mars, they'd have to be protected from the Martian environment. But, but conceivably, cultivating um, uh, microalgae and cyanobacteria for food uh, could be practical on Mars because they can form a very um, condensed um, and, and relatively easily cultivated food source. So that, that that's the idea there. And you know, cyanobacteria and microalgae are they? types of um, extremophile bacteria, or not not as normally considered no mm. like I said they couldn't live on Mars in the open Martian mm. environment they would have to be protected in um, some sort of um, I hesitate to say greenhouse because that mm. makes it sound like we're talking about plants whereas this sort of a bioreactor would really be the term a closed system in which these microalgae I mean they are mini plants single-celled plants um, 
but they're probably more easily cultivatable on a place like uh, Mars than larger larger plants would be. So, so that's the idea. I mean, there are there are places on the Earth where microalgae and cyanobacteria are cultivated as a food source. It's not it's not an entirely new idea. The, the idea here, though, is that of all the things we might take to Mars as a potential food source, these might be the most easy to cultivate um, in a Mars base. Do you think life exists on other planets and or, or beyond in the universe? And you know, have we found any si- signs of such an existence so far? Well, we have not found any signs yet, and so searching for it is quite an important part of astrobiology and modern modern science generally. Um, if you ask me whether I think there is life elsewhere in the universe, I, I mean, I, I, it's kind of difficult to guess. Mm. Obviously, I'm tempted to say yes. The universe is a very big place. There are hundreds of thousands of millions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and we now know most of them will have planets. Mm. And so that billions and billions of planets which could potentially host life but then we haven't yet found any evidence for any life um, in our own solar system or on any planet around any other stars. So the honest answer is we just don't know. So I think rather than speculating about it, what we should be doing is going out to look. I mean, mm. the way to get an answer to this is to explore the universe around us and eventually we'll find out whether life is common or not. And what, what do you think is um, the sort of the future of uh, astrobiology um, because in this instance as you as you said the universe is very very large and um, obviously um, you know things are um, not doesn't come to miles away but light years away so w- what do you think is the the future of um, astrobiology in terms of once we've uh, sort of explored um, our, our so-called our, our planets in our solar system well, so I mean, in a sense, that's what astrobiology is. Astrobiology is the science of searching for life in the universe. It's got a, it's, it's got a bright future as a science. Um, of course, we don't know whether it will be successful or not. But the actual search for life in the universe has a bright future because we've still got a lot of places in our own solar system to explore. Mars we've talked quite a bit about. But there are other places in our solar system, especially the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, which probably have oceans of liquid water underneath their ice-covered surfaces. These are potentially habitable environments waiting to be explored. And then we now know that planets are common around stars. Um, so we, we can't yet build any spaceships to visit any other stars because they're too far away for our current technology. But we can use big telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope that's just been successfully launched to try and see whether the atmospheres of these planets around other stars um, uh, have anything in them that indicate that life might be present. So there's a, yeah, I think there's a very rich feature for the science of astrobiology for searching for life. Um, but, but of course, that doesn't mean we'll ever actually find any. <laughs> so, mm. so it's a kind of open-ended exploration, really, of the universe to try and find out. Um, we've asked you lots and lots of questions, but just just the final one uh, uh, for yourself. Um, out, out of all the planets, what, what do you think is the most likely, if there was any life, to harbour life? Well, if we're talking about the planets in our own solar system that we know something mm. about, um, I, and if we're talking about to ever, ever harbour life, apart from the Earth, obviously, I think Mars, Mars remains probably the strongest candidate. Mm. Not necessarily Mars today, 
It's a very inhospitable place, the surface of Mars today. But Mars as it was thousands of millions of years ago, Mars as a, in its early history, when it did have rivers of liquid water and a thicker atmosphere, uh, probably was a habitable environment. So I do think searching for evidence of past life on Mars, and so there's the evidence of fossils life on Mars, really, this is probably the strongest uh, candidate still for finding life on a planet in our solar system other than the Earth. And um, the the research goes on, I guess. Um, but thank you so much, Professor Ian Crawford, for uh, joining us today, for being on the show and for giving us uh, a share of your uh, uh, valuable time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was Professor Ian Crawford, uh, who is a professor of planetary science and astrobiology. His research activities mostly lie in the fields of planetary science, especially uh, lunar science and exploration, uh, and astrobiology, the search for life as uh, uh, in the universe, as uh, stated uh, quite a few times. Um, but we will be moving on to our third guest for um, the segment um, in a Dr. Matt Nichol. Dr. Matt Nichol is a, an associate professor of astrophysics at the University of Birmingham and director of the University Observatory. <coughs> he uses the world's most powerful telescopes to research supernovae and other kinds of stellar ex uh, explosions um, and how these create the chemical elements and you know what, what they can tell us about black holes and nuclear matter. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and uh, good morning and welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on as well. And, um, you know, we are talking about um, a journey into outer space, exploring the recent astronomical discoveries. Um, so we're just focusing on a, a sort of general aspect on all, all the sorts of recent astronomical discoveries that, uh, that have happened. Um, so could you briefly explain the... Uh, mineralogy and composition of uh, the mar uh, sorry could you briefly describe your journey to astrophysics and what motivated you to enter this field yes of course I mean I think I've been interested in space pretty much as long as I can remember you know I was growing up I read lots of books about plants and stars and enjoy picturing these big faraway things and I probably wanted to be an astronaut but, uh, you know, you, you grow up, you get distracted by things. But eventually I, I, I did do physics at university and uh, it was during a summer project. Um, I got to do some research looking at supernovae explosions. And I think that it was then that I remembered how much I was interested in space and, and the joy of doing a job where you get to discover new things. So that was about 2012, I think I realized I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And that was quite good timing because around then people were starting to figure out how to use robotic telescopes to scan the whole sky and look for new things that were happening and with that they started to find hundreds or thousands of different kinds of cosmic explosions all in real time that you could look at and I just find this totally amazing so that's what I've been, been researching ever since and you know to talk a, a little bit about that research what, do, what does it entail you said it entails looking at um, the actual um, sort of supernovae in real time but you know is there um, sort of uh, data sets and other things like that to look at as well? Yeah that's right so I'm, I'm quite an observational astrophysicist so uh, I use telescopes all different kinds of telescopes mm. so optical telescopes that see the same light that our eyes can see but also infrared telescopes, UV, X-ray, radio, you know, you, you name it. I've probably 
uh, use it at some point. And the idea is just to try to collect as much information about these things uh, while they're happening. So uh, something will happen in space and, and there's an explosion and one of these robotic telescopes will catch it. So then you want to get as much information as you can while it's still bright enough to observe because it tells you things about how stars are born and how they evolve and how they die and all the important things that that does in the universe. And to look at um, you know supernovae from from a smaller lens, how how do they indicate the accelerating expansion of the universe? So there's there's one particular type of supernova. It's called a type one a supernova that happens uh, actually from white dwarf stars if they if they have a close companion they can interact with. And for some reason that's not a hundred percent understood. Uh, these type one a supernovae almost always have nearly the exact same brightness. So when we see one and, and measure the amount of light that we receive, we can work out how far away it is by comparing the brightness that we see to how bright we know that it should be. And that lets you measure distances to far away galaxies. And we can also measure how far, uh, how fast those galaxies are moving. And what we find is that all the galaxies in the universe are moving away from each other and away from us. So that tells us the universe must be expanding. And, and the other cool thing is that you know, the further away a galaxy is, the longer ago the light that reaches us today was uh, leaving that galaxy. So when you look at a faraway galaxy, you're also looking back in time. Uh, and so we can measure how fast the universe is expanding at different times during its history. And what we find is that it seems to be expanding faster today than it was in the, in the distant past, which tells us that the universe uh, is not just expanding, but that this expansion is getting faster and accelerating. So trying to figure out why this acceleration is happening is a, a huge topic of research these days. And uh, I believe that is... Um the research includes um, uh, speculations of uh, is it is it dark matter or dark energy? Um, yes, that's right. It's the the dark dark energy is mm. the uh, the name of this thing that uh, we don't know what it is mm. that causes the universe to accelerate. Okay, and what uh, you know earlier this year there was some news about astronomers de- detecting an afterglow from a kilonova. Uh, so, uh, for the benefit of our listeners and uh, ourselves here as well at the studio, what exactly is a kilonova and how powerful is it? Yeah, that's that's a good question. This kilonova is a little bit more obscure than the supernova. So the supernova is what happens at the end of the life of a, of a massive star, and it leaves behind something called a, a neutron star. So these neutron stars are kind of the collapsed cores that used to be in these stars, and it's made of uh, essentially the same stuff as the center of an atom, but it's roughly the size of Birmingham, you know, it's 10, 20 kilometers across. So it's it's so dense that if you had a spoonful of this stuff on Earth, it would weigh something like, I think, 100 billion tons. So it's it's wow. the densest matter in the universe. So very often these massive stars, uh, they live in pairs called binary systems, mm. you know, two stars close to each other. So if both of these stars leave behind neutron stars, uh, these things will eventually spiral in and collide with each other. And uh, to give a sense of how powerful this collision is, uh, it's so powerful it actually produces sort of ripples in space itself that we call gravitational waves. So it makes the universe vibrate, if you like. And we've detected these uh, in the last few years. In 2017, we, we actually found the gravitational wave ripple from these uh, neutron stars 100 million light years away colliding. So once they collide, probably most of the material goes into a black hole, but some of it escapes. And because it's made of this really dense substance, it can make these really heavy radioactive elements. So the kilonova is, is what we see from all this radioactive material that's been ejected. It sort of glows because it's, it's heated by radioactive decays. But uh, these are much rarer than supernovae, and 
they're they're faster and they fade away uh, more quickly. So they're they're hard to find, but they're really really important because we now think that most of the chemical elements in the universe um, that are heavier than iron are all made by these kilonovae. So things like gold and silver uh, probably all come from these colliding neutron stars. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, and 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 Dr. Uh, Nicole, uh, uh, Nicole, uh, what, what is meant by a tidal uh, disruption uh, event, and how long does this actually last as well? So this is another kind of explosion that I like to study, and this is what happens when a star passes too close to a supermassive black hole. Mm-hmm. So these days we think that nearly every galaxy, uh, including our own Milky Way galaxy, has a very massive black hole right in the center. It weighs somewhere between a million and a billion times the, the mass of our sun. So you can imagine if a star gets close to this, the, the gravitational force is incredibly strong, and it's so strong that it can rip the star totally apart. So uh, what we observe is whenever this uh, star gets ripped apart, the material falls back towards the black hole. Mm-hmm. It gets extremely hot as it falls back, and so uh, we can see it start to glow and shine in uh, visible light and also in x-rays and other things. Uh, but because the star gets so stretched out as it goes around the black hole, this process has fallen back onto it lasts actually for, for weeks or months, so they can last for quite a long time, these tidal disruptions. Uh, and if the material manages to form a disk that orbits around the black hole, it can even stay bright for several years until the black hole finally eats up all this material. Oh, wow. oh okay. Nice. Um, and, and to understand uh, the evolution of the universe, um, it's essential to understand star formation, isn't it? So what exactly is a star and how does its formation and death actually occur for the benefit of our listeners please yeah another great question so i mean stars are really the the building blocks of the universe because planets orbit stars and collections of stars make up galaxies so everything's really really comes back to stars and basically every star is a a nuclear reactor that's contained by its own gravity so uh, they form because most of the matter in the universe is just uh, hydrogen gas and hydrogen is the simplest atom that there is but if you've got a big flood of hydrogen, it'll contract under its own gravity and get denser and denser and denser. And eventually, the pressure at the center gets so high that these hydrogen atoms start to collide with each other uh, and make helium, a process called nuclear fusion. And it's just like the same thing that happens in a, in a hydrogen bomb. So it releases a lot of energy, and this stops this cloud from contracting and, and makes it shine. Uh, and, and it's enough energy just to, to hold it sort of in place and stop this collapse. So you have these nuclear reactions that make it hot and expand and you have gravity compressing it inwards and when those two things balance out you've got a star so the star then will spend most of its life you know 10 million or many billions of years just continuing to turn hydrogen into helium in the core and that's just what the sun is doing now it's been doing it for about five billion years and mm-hmm. it'll probably keep doing it for another five billion but eventually these stars use up the hydrogen and then they have to make heavier and heavier things uh, and the problem comes whenever a large star uh, gets all the way up to iron because at that point you can't get anything any more energy out. So at that stage, these massive stars die by, by the core collapsing. So the core collapses from roughly the size of the Earth to a neutron star that's 10 kilometers across in just one second. And in that second, it releases more energy than it probably did in its entire life up to, up to that point. Mm-hmm. And that's the bit that we call the supernova. Nice. Nice. Uh, I mean, uh, very interesting. Uh, a lot of information to to uh, that you got across in such a such a easy uh, to understand method as well. So thank you uh, for, for for that. Um, unfortunately, that's uh, all we have time for today. Uh, but we would love to hear uh, uh, more from you in regards to um, uh, supernovae and and all these other um, uh, things as well. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Yes, you too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. 
0208-687-7878. That was Dr. Matt Nichol, uh, who is an associate professor at Astro- uh, of Astrophysics at the University of Birmingham and director of the University Observatory. Um, <coughs> sorry. He uses the world's most uh, powerful telescopes uh, to research supernovae and other kinds of stellar explosion, how these create the the chemical elements and what they tell us about black holes and nuclear matter. Um, and with that, we're going to be going straight to our last guest for the show. Remember, if you would like to 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 to, to mention uh, or to say anything from your own selves, um, if you would like to share your own uh, thoughts on this topic, then of course you can do so. The number for you as always is 0208 and of course you can tweet us and leave your comments on our Instagram page as well at Voice of Islam UK um, the next guest uh, that we have on for today uh, is Professor John Bridges um, who is the Professor of Planetary Sciences at the University of Leicester an experienced researcher uh, Professor Bridges uh, has worked on many missions including ExoMars and has analysed some remarkable meteorites um, his research and that of his team aims uh, uh, include to in understand water rock reactions in the Martian crust and different, uh, differentiation of the lithosphere. Um, Assalamu alaikum, uh, Professor John Bridges. Uh, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning and uh, thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for being with us. Um, the, the the first question that we wanted to ask you was if you could kindly briefly uh, explain the mineralogy and composition of the Martian surface, please. Well, this is uh, something our view of, or our knowledge of, has changed greatly and has deepened greatly over the last 20 years. So if we were to backtrack to the mid-1970s when um, the first successful landings on Mars took place, the Mm -hmm. two Viking landers, Mm -hmm. 1906, there was this view of the surface of Mars as being almost like, you know, the cartoon view of Mars Mm -hmm. with uh, a gently rolling sandy plain with a few dark um, rocks scattered around on it. And uh, and that was, was sort of the view of the Mars surface composition um, basalt lava flows and a few occasional floods breaking up um, the lava flows and disgorging them in great floods down onto the northern plains but we now know when, because we've landed on in more places and we've got more detailed imagery and spectroscopy from more but we now know that the history of Mars is much richer and deeper than that so we know we've got we had great lakes with hundreds of meters depth of thickness of mudstones and deltaic deposits have been deposited and basically a much more complex series of um, crustal formation processes Mm -hmm. so um, there's much more detail to the evolution of Mars that we've been discovering um, with the current set of Mars missions Okay, um, we we spoke about this with our previous guest, uh, Dr. Matt Nichol, uh, as mm-hmm. as well. Um, in in regards to what uh, Mars was like in the past, uh, and has it ever been habitable? Um, uh, and I know your 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 uh, um, uh, the University of Leicester is doing, uh, I think, uh, uh, an event on this on the fifteenth of September, or did one? Sorry, on the fifteenth of seventeenth uh, of September is coming up. Yeah, that's right. Um, High Cross. Uh, Humberston Gate uh, as part of the British Science Festival um, we'll have one of the exhibits we're doing a Mars one there Okay. and of course we've, you know, we've done lots of uh, 
outreach uh, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 um, and uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, what, what um, would you uh, would you say on on this? If if Mars it has been habitable um, ever in the past? Yes, um, that was one of the big conclusions from Mars Science Laboratory, the Curiosity rover, a mission I've been part of since landing in 2012. Mm-hmm. So, what, what the basic factors that uh, we think are needed for our for the possibility of life to have occurred in the ancient past, billions of years ago, would be stable presence of water. Well, we've ticked that box because mm. we know we found these ancient lake deposits in Gale Crater. Yeah. You've got to have the so-called chinops elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, the sort of elemental chemical building blocks of life. We know we've got that as well. And you must have sort of relatively moderate temperatures and atmospheric pressures to protect from the harsh solar radiation. So we know we've got all those, we've got the elemental factors, we've identified organics, we know there was a stable body of water for probably millions of years at least. Um, So we know that it was habitable. If there was primitive microbial life, it could have existed there in some form. What we haven't found is, of course, the next question that leads on to is, yes, it was habitable, but was it ever inhabited? Exactly. (laughs) microbial life get there, or did it take hold? Did it even start there? So that's the next question, with the next set of rovers and the next set of uh, missions. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've been, uh, um, Professor John, you've been um, part of various sample return, uh, return missions. So yep. what, what what does a Stardust sam- uh, sample return mission involve, and you know how useful were the specimens? Okay, well the Stardust sample sample return mission was very different. That was returning samples from a comet called Cometville Two. Hmm. Um, so the mission uh, in two thousand and four flew through the coma. That's you know in the comet you get those jets of dust and ice coming off as the comet comes into the inner solar system Mm. starts to heat up so you get this material which ultimately forms the great cometary tails or some of the tails Um, but near the surface relatively near the surface of the comet it forms these these jets uh, in what's called the coma of a comet Um, so the Stardust craft passed through um, the leading edge the coma of the comet at uh, six kilometers per second, so you know, bullet-like speed, uh, and collected cometary grains in its um, specially designed gel, aerogel, it's called, collector. So we collected all these cometary grains on the spacecraft in, in that gel, the aerogel, and then we brought it back to Earth, landed in Utah in 2006, and then since then we've been carefully <coughs> dissecting and working our way through those cometary grains to work out what uh, the comet is made of. And, you know, Mission to Mars is a thrilling exploration program um, that, that is ongoing, but, you know, what are some of the challenges that future Mars exploration uh, presents? Uh, well, there are many challenges. So, um, future Mars exploration, we hope to bring samples back from Mars, um, and of course, in the 2040s, um, 
there's a um, sort of long-term aim to have some sort of a human exploration of Mars. So that needs a whole new set of technology to safely land humans on Mars and let them live there and uh, keep them alive with all the resources, the oxygen, the food, the water that they need, and of course bring them back. So there are lots of big technological challenges um, in the, the exploration of Mars over the next few decades. And, you know, to talk about um, a bit more about Mars's history, um, you know, we were talking about in the past, has it ever been habitable? But what was its composition like in the past? And, you know, Mars is also home to the, the largest uh, volcano in the solar system, the uh, uh, Olympus Olympus Mons. Um, yep. Is this um, uh, an indicator of of life as well? Well, the uh, the great shield volcanoes, the great um, volcanoes like Olympus Mons, is over twenty kilometers high, and mm. what that's really pointing towards how the evolution of Mars and Earth diverged. They went their separate ways, if you like. So on Earth, of course, famously. The crust and the upper brittle mantle called the lithosphere has split. We have the tectonic plates which move against each other. Um, but on Mars, we didn't get that. It's just one rigid uh, lithospheric crust or plate. And that means it's, it was relatively stable. So rather than volcanoes forming, splitting, reforming chains as we get on Earth, on Mars, when the volcano is under the basalt magma coming up from the interior of Mars, erupted and formed the great shield volcano Olympus Mons. It just kept on forming. It just kept mm -hmm. on erupting, just kept on getting bigger and bigger because there was no tectonic plates splitting and reforming to, to stop it, basically. So that shows how Earth and Mars diverged um, in the sort of second part of their evolution and just just lastly if if there ever was life on mars um is there is there any certain event that um may have wiped them out let's say if uh, they ever did exist um if there ever was microbial life on mars it would almost certainly be in ancient mars by which i mean mm. perhaps 3.8 billion years and older today's because Mars lost its atmosphere, mm. um, the radiation environment is very harsh, and it's it's quite hard to imagine there being um, current day life. Um, so I think what we're looking for, or the biggest chance we've got of finding ancient life is fossilized life, if you like, ancient mm. life and the traces of it, chemical traces, some visual traces. Um, and it may be quite difficult to track down quite um quite a confused um fragmentary uh, record so sample turn and and other missions including perhaps uh, a re reworked exomars mission professor john it's been um absolutely wonderful to have you on today uh, you know it's been so um informative and insightful um and just generally interesting as well uh, so thank you so much for coming on and we hope okay. to see you uh, on You're another well. show.
Thanks so much. That was uh, Professor John Bridges, uh, who is the Professor of Planetary Sciences at the University of Leicester. An experienced researcher, Professor Bridges has worked on many missions, including ExoMars, and has analyzed some remarkable meteorites. His research and that of his team aims uh, include to understand water-rock reactions in the Martian crust and differentiation of the lithosphere. Um, So uh, not only that discussion, but all four of our guests for this segment, uh, we thank very kindly for coming on uh, to today's show and for, you know, giving us so much information on so many different topics. Um, You know, looking at Mars, looking at supernova, uh, looking at kilonovas, looking at um, the solar system in general and, you know, a really, really wide range of things going on. But I do believe there was a third discovery that NASA made as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah, So and that was a study uh, published in uh, Nature Communications by an international team. Uh, Details... Um, the discovery of the origin uh, of a 4.48 billion year old Martian uh, meteorite um, and its source uh, region has remained a mystery until now. Um, the team led by Anthony Legain at the C- uh, Curtin University in Australia studied and uh, studied the physical and chemical properties of the meteorite to determine it, uh, that it came from uh, Terra Crimeria Serenum, uh, one of the oldest uh, regions of Mars. Mars and the, and the meteorite recorded the first stage of the evolution of Mars. That's something that we've uh, addressed with two of our guests um, previously as well today. Um, the chemistry of the meteorite uh, indicates that Mars had a volcanic activity similar to that found on Earth. The discovery has also uh, allowed scientists to believe that the red planet 4.5 billion years ago uh, may have had a crust comparable to, to, to Iceland today. Uh, scientists hope that the discovery helps in answering questions um, held uh, about Earth's development into a planet uh, sustaining a broad diversity of life and why Mars did not develop in such a way. And um, uh, Bashir, you're completely right. You mentioned how vast and how great um, the the space really is, isn't it? And, And it really puts into perspective how small and how insignificant we are, isn't it? Mm. Um, and uh, it's uh, the, the 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 when uh, this actually reminds me of an incident of uh, our second caliph, which uh, we've mentioned earlier as well. Hazim is a Bashirdi Mahmoud Ahmed. May Allah be pleased with him and have mercy on his soul. Um, in which when he he realized that God is actually limitless. Um, and uh, this was back in 1900 um, when he he was only 11 years of age, such a such a young boy, right? Uh, not even a teenager yet, and he began wondering whether there was a god and why he believed in him. So he didn't just uh, take for on face value that his father is a prophet mm. and uh, he has to be a believer as well, or he has to believe in God. No, he actually did his own research as well. Um, and 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 at such a young and tender age, he began wondering whether there was a God uh, and, and 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 why he believed in him. And he said that even at that age, he pondered a great deal and eventually came to the certainty that God truly exists. One night he was looking uh, at the stars and thought, what is there beyond the stars? He came to the realization that there would be more stars. He kept asking that what would be beyond that. Then coming to the same realization, he then uh, came to the conclusion that if something like the stars can seem to be continuous, then of course, surely, God is also limitless as well. 
Um, and if we turn to chapter 42, verse 30 of the Holy Quran, it sheds light on this subject as well. And, and it states that, and among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and of whatever living creatures he has spread forth in both. And he has the power to gather them together when he will so please. According to this unique and striking verse of the Holy Quran, mankind will one day communicate with the creatures and dwell in the heavens, um, as is stated in this verse. Um, and what is more remarkable is that the Holy Quran revealed the existence of life outside our planet before science was even fully established. The lexical choice of the word uh, creatures highlights that the verse is referring to animals that creep or move along the surface of the earth. Therefore, th this verse hints towards terrestrial life and not any spiritual entities. If, if we delve deeper into the Arabic lexicon, uh, it comes to light that the creatures referred to are also intelligent beings who are able to think rationally. All of this is definitely mind perplexing. But what is even more startling is that the verse also informs mankind that one day we will come into contact with such species as well. Um, I mean, this is very interesting stuff uh, that we all need to, to, to look forward to as well. Um, and we need to remember that anything that the Holy Quran has revealed, um, science plays catch up and will one day, uh, we, we, we will see um, how this has also been fulfilled as well. Even if we may not understand now, we will come to do so in the following and the coming years, God willing. And that's all that we have time for today. Here's 9 o'clock news.